Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. He's one of the few real movie stars still around. He's won two Oscars and twice been named the sexiest man alive. But he's much more than a handsome Hollywood face. He's a director and screenwriter. And in the real world, he's a committed activist and philanthropist. What's his next act? We'll ask him. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. I deny it, don't do that. (laughs) Are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes, of course I will. George Clooney, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. It's great to talk with you again. Well, it's good to see you again, Chris. How are you? I'm good, and yourself? I'm good, and congratulations on your new show. I'm very excited for it. Well, thank you. Uh, Let's talk about your new movie, Ticket Mm. to Paradise, Mm. in which you're aware that you made this new movie. I am, and I was saddled with uh, Julia Roberts. Right. Which was a lot of work, as you Well, you had carried her through the movie. I, I, in general, do that with her, as you can tell. Okay. You know, so, I'm known for my romantic comedies, as you know. Well, so we're going to talk about that in a minute. So <laughs> you and Julia uh, play a divorced couple who hate each other, but you reunite in order to try to stop your daughter from getting married, a marriage who you disapprove of. Here you are. Mm. Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. You speak English. Oh, you're still doing the Italian tourist bit. Excuse me, ma'am, I need to sit somewhere else. I'm sorry, it's a full flight. We used to be married. The worst 19 years of my life. We were only married for five. I'm counting the recovery. <laughs> so, as I was watching this movie, yes, I was thinking about star power mm. and what it is that makes a movie star. Why do you think it is, seriously, why do you think it is that it makes all the rest of us feel better to watch someone like you? Well, I don't know if that's true, but I... But you, like you or Julia or well, I know Spencer Tracy. Well, Spencer Tracy right. is a really good example One of, of your an actual movies. Absolute hero of mine. But, you know, it's sort of, what was that uh, senator who they were doing something about porn? And he says, I, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when no, I see it. No, it was actually, it was a uh, Supreme Court justice, Potter Stewart. There you go. So it's kind of that with movie stars. I don't know why some of them are movie stars. You know, there's lots of talented actors. I don't know why some of them, you know, if you look at Spencer Tracy, you wouldn't think he's not, you know, uh, uh, Cary Grant. He's not the sexiest man alive. He's not two-time sexiest (laughs) man. Um, And he's a movie star. You can't take your eyes off him. So I don't know what it is. There's something uh, electric about that. You know, when I work with Julia, you can see it on her. You know, and it's it's very alive in the room because she's sort of invested in things. And she's such a great um, she's just a great friend and a, I think a great person to be on the set with, too. You know, I don't know how to describe it, though. I don't know what it is. I, I look you can look at some actors over the years who weren't necessarily even the best actors of their generation, but they were stars. You know, and th- do you think it's just something 
in their personality, something in their aura that you just can't take your eyes off? I think sometimes it it, it starts with, uh, uh, you know, a whatever job, a really good job that someone can identify you with. For me, just, uh, you know, I worked for years and years and years and then I got ER and suddenly we were on a Thursday night and a really great time slot and it was a really great show. And everything changed for me. My career changed and work changed and perceptions of me changed. Um, that wasn't, it wasn't like I was some genius along the way. I finally was working in the right vehicle. So maybe sometimes it's about the vehicle. You know, Julia was pretty woman, I think. Um, but it, but I, I can't explain it. And I don't quite know how it works. I've, I, I know a lot of movie stars and, you know, and you look at them going, you know, when they walk in the room there, you can't take your eye off them. You've made some darker movies uh, in recent <laughs> years, including one literally about the end of the world. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of people said to you, why don't you just be Cary Grant and make romantic comedies? Why is it, after years of resistance, you have decided in this movie to be Cary Grant and make a rom-com? <laughs> well, um, you know, I haven't done one in a long time. I think it was 1996 when I did One Fine Day, when I did a sort of a straight-up romantic comedy. Probably not my greatest um, uh, you know, vehicles along the way. I have to say, um, I got this, sent the script and, you know, we've worked on, it's been a lot of dark things going on in the world. You know, and I always feel that films try to reflect that often. They're usually late because it takes a couple of years to make a film. Uh, it felt like we all needed a break. I needed a break. I needed to, um, I, I needed it to be uh, a little carefree. I needed something. You know, if you look back at during the Depression, for instance, romantic comedies really flourished. I think people needed a break. I, um, uh, I certainly know Julia and I were both, when we read it, we thought, I need a breather here. And this was the perfect thing for us. As I say, in the movie, you and Julia play a couple that, that really do not like each other. And at one <laughs> point, you explain why the marriage fell apart. And you say, uh, at the beginning, it was unreal. <laughs> and then it got real. Yeah. You've now been married just recently, eight years. Yes. To your lovely wife Amal. Yes. She's not here. I you looked. I was around. looking around, <laughs> making sure she's <laughs> not this here. This is not. This is your life. Yeah. No, she comes out from behind. <laughs> yeah. Hi. So is that what's happened with you and Amal? And is it is it real yet? No, uh, I don't. I, with any luck, it'll never be real. I feel uh, incredibly lucky every day. You know, I feel like, um, you know, I I have in in my wife, uh, someone who is uh, my best friend and someone who I am, uh, you know, terribly in love with. And it's, you know, we, probably because it happened for me later in life, uh, it, I don't take any of that for granted, any moment of any day. And uh, and we, I think we both really made, uh, you know, a, a commitment to uh, make sure that we understand how lucky we are. You know, I, I go through this a lot, and you and I have had conversations about this before, and I always talk about, you know, careers. I cut tobacco for a living, you know. I've done, you know, sold ladies' uh, shoes and insurance door-to-door, and uh, I understand what it's like to not have insurance and to, uh, and to, you know, live paycheck to paycheck or no check to no check. I understand how lucky I am in this, in my career and things, and I also... And in doing that, I also have learned how lucky I am in love. And uh, it took me a while, but, uh, but Amal walked in and changed everything. You said at, at some point, suddenly someone else's life 
becomes more important to you than your own. Is that is that it? Sure. Now I got two kids, so it's even worse, as you know. You've got kids. <laughs> it's a uh, no, yeah. You got all these people whose lives are more important Listen, than your own. My own. wife showed up and she screwed up my whole life. Everything's gone wrong since then. Yeah. No. I look. I think that um, it's a really exciting thing in life to care more about, particularly if you're an actor, which basically the focus is usually on you. It's really an exciting thing in life to be able to say and feel, really earnestly feel, that uh, that that their lives, my wife's life, my kids' life, is infinitely more important than mine and what they're doing in their lives. And, uh, uh, and I know parents all, I'm not, this is not a unique right. thing. I understand that. But, uh, but I, 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 it's also important to always acknowledge it and know it. So we're going to do an exercise now in okay. which one of us is going to grow older right in front of us, which is going to be a lot more fun. Is it going to be you? Yeah, they're going to start <laughs> seeing me in grade school. So let's start in 1994. You're age 33. You mentioned it a moment ago. You get your part as Doug Ross, Dr. Right. Doug Ross, in the show ER. And... Uh, we're going to show two scenes. First of all, you in the ER, mm -hmm. saving somebody's life, and then you saving a kid who's been trapped in a flooded uh, tunnel. Yes. Here you are. Okay, give me 360. Charging. And clear. Okay, he's stabilized. Let's go. You hold on, damn it. You hold on. You hold on. You hold on. So, so, so I like that you emerging from the water as the savior with yes. this kid. That, that's uh, that's a, that was I asked for that in my contract. Did, did you say I want to come out as the savior? It's funny we were shooting that in Chicago, and you know Chicago how the weather is, and we, it was in October, and we got there, and it was daytime, and we were shooting during the day. It was seventy degrees, and I was like, this is gonna be cakewalk tonight when we're shooting out in the water, and it started snowing by the time we got there that night, and it was just we were all wearing wetsuits, and that poor kid was suffering like crazy for it. <laughs> You know. beyond, beyond the with the story, he's yeah, in yeah. real life. If you could say something to that 33-year-old George Clooney, mm. what would you say to him? Mm. I would say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm any wiser than I was, you know, uh, 25 years ago. I'm not quite sure I am. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I would say to make sure that you enjoy it. Uh, I did, quite honestly. So, you know, I, I worked hard through that period of time. I worked seven days a week for five years because I was doing films while I was doing the show. And uh, and I needed to because that's how I ended up having success in other parts of the industry. So, you know, now I can look back and say maybe slow down or enjoy it. But at the time, it was really fun. At that moment, mm -hmm. I, I did a little research. At age 33, you had been offered your own show, mm -hmm. and you yeah. decided to turn that down to do yeah. to work with Steven Spielberg and to be part of an ensemble. I mean, sure. there were a lot of other big stars in that show. And as someone who I know is so smart and so strategic about your career, why? Well, the first thing is I'd been I'd done seven television series at this point, and I'd been kind of the second banana on most of them. And uh, none of them were very good, quite honestly. And I wasn't very good in them. I'm not here to crap all over the shows. Uh, I wasn't particularly good in them. Uh, I, I needed to work. And, I, you know, there's a funny thing actors do, which is 
when you're a young actor, particularly before, now the television has changed a little bit. Well, when you're a young actor, when I was growing up, everybody, we're all movie actors. I'm a movie actor. I just happen to be doing television. <laughs> but this is a way station. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, yeah. Even though I'd never done a film, right. I'm a movie actor. I'm just doing TV. And so you just kind of took jobs, you know. And finally, I got to a place where I said, well, <laughs> I'm a TV actor. And so I better try to do better television. And this was for a lot less pay. But it was working with Spielberg and Crichton. And Spielberg was just coming off of uh, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. And it was a really good script. The part was the smallest part of all of the parts. But I've, over my career, fared very well in ensembles, quite honestly. And I like them. I think they work really well. And so this was, I just had uh, dinner with Tony Edwards and Juliana Margulies. And, you know, and I'm very close. Two stars in the show with you. I'm still very close to all of them. It was a really... It was a great sort of magical moment. You know, we were doing 40 million people a, a night on Thursday nights, so that's a big number. Yes, 40, that's like Super Bowl number now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the TV actor becomes a movie actor, and in 2001 you do what has all, still is one of your biggest hits, Ocean's Eleven. Sure. And we have a scene of you explaining to Brad Pitt mm. why you're going to take down a casino in Las Vegas. Okay. Because a house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you. Unless, when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. Been practicing this speech a little bit. Did I rush? It felt like I rushed. That was good. I liked it. <laughs> so, would you agree that that is part of your appeal? That you have an ability to let the audience know you're playing a real part, real person, but I'm in on the joke. Sometimes. I mean, that part certainly required that. I, you know, I think when I've been in other films like uh, Syriana, there's no real joke to it. And so I, I, I think that there's, a, there, there's certain films and certain jobs that, like uh, Ticket to Paradise, same thing, where you kind of, you're kind of winking a little bit saying this is going to be fun. Uh, this was a fun movie. These were fun characters. We all had a really good time. But, you know, that was, that was the design of that. I haven't done many like that, you know, Michael Clayton isn't really winking at the yeah. camera or stuff like. I guess O Brother does a little bit. Kind of makes fun of uh, movie stars over gen- over the generations and stuff like that. So maybe maybe some of that's true. Is that hard to do? I mean, as you say, you do it in some roles you don't in others. But you know, to play the character, play it straight, but just give a little wink to the audience, like you know, we're in on this. Well, there's guys that were really much better at it than me. There was like Burt Reynolds, remember? He was always really, you always felt like at any moment he would just turn and look at the camera and literally wink, you know? There were guys who were really good at that, which has never been sort of my skill set. My, um, I mean, a good script is a good script. I've done films that are really terrible and I've been terrible in them. So it really comes down to a good script and a good director. Okay, so you, four years later, okay. you do Syriana yeah. and you win an Oscar for that. Mm. And we're going to show the scene where the bad guys catch you. You're a CIA agent. Yeah. They catch you, and they torture you. Sure. You fucking fuck, fucking fuck, stupid fuck. What the fuck? This is a war. Fuck. You're peel fucking W. Give me the fucking names. How badly were you hurt in that scene? Badly. Um, when, when he falls down, is that where you got hurt? I was taped to the chair, yeah. and, uh, and we did one take where I went over, and uh, it wasn't on purpose. And it was all, there was water. They kept throwing buckets of water on it. It was just an accident. You know, it happens. I ended up having um, a 12-hour surgery on Christmas Eve. 
And then I've had, you know, five or six, uh, some surgery and some just medical procedures since then. I've been fine for about 10 years, which is amazing. But it was about a 10-year period of time that I was in, you know, pretty bad shape. Well, you say pretty bad shape. There is a story that you supposedly at one point at least thought, if not actively, moved about ending your life. Is that true? Not really true. You know, I I think what I was trying to say at the time was really uh, chronic pain is what I think what I actually said uh, was you couldn't survive with this for a long period of time. Um, And I had to find a way to adjust to that. And the first way we do it is through painkillers as we've seen with the sort of Sackler documentary that's come out. Right. Uh, it's a very dangerous Opioids. step. Opioids. It's a very dangerous step, you know, Vicodin and all of that stuff. And I, was, I did that for a very short period of time, and I realized that uh, this was going to be a, a real problem for me if I stuck it out because it's highly addictive and it really feels good, you know, and it takes away the pain. So I had to go to a pain management guy and sort of really understand and, to, and using, you know, you had to literally say, okay, we have to, you have to decide about pain in the strangest way. You have to say, okay, the reason it hurts so much is because if you were born feeling the way you feel right now, you'd never know you were in pain, right? You just think that's how you're supposed to be. So we're kind of mourning how we used to feel. And part of the idea of pain was also then trying to adjust your pain threshold by saying, if, thinking of it as this is how you are always going to feel and not mourning how you used to feel. And it changed everything for me and made it easier for me not to, um, not to have to take uh, uh, drugs that I knew were, gonna, were taking me down the wrong path. So did you end up getting fixed up by surgery or is it really that you just learned to live with it? Well, it was a little of both for a while, right? The surgery works, but you know, I had a, uh, you know, for people who don't understand, I had a thing called a CSF leak, a cranial spinal fluid leak, and it was, your spinal fluid comes out through the holes in your back where they're torn through your door. And then your brain sinks in your head. And well, the, this doesn't sound good. It's painful. <laughs> yes. And so you need to keep plugging up the holes, literally like putting your finger in the, in the dam. And so for periods of time, they would shoot plastic into your spine and then it would kind of cork up the, the holes. But eventually that took. And so I haven't had any real uh, kind of bad headaches for about 10 years. Then, at the depth of the Great Recession, you have another movie where you play a guy whose job it is to go around the country laying people off and up in the air. We prepare the newly unemployed for the emotional and physical hurdles of job hunting while minimizing legal blowback. That's what we're selling. It's not what we're doing. Okay, what are we doing? We are here to make limbo tolerable to ferry wounded souls across the river of dread until a point where hope is dimly visible. And then to stop the boat, shove them in the water and make them swim. So I want to ask you a technique question. How do you, in such a minimal way, so subtly, communicate, frankly, so much? I mean, humor, cynicism, self-awareness, and and you're not doing much, but it's all there. Well, I, again, I think sometimes actors get too much credit for things, and, and I can prove it to you. Because, um, for instance, 
it's script and director. That's all it is. It really is. I've been, you know, I was kind of hailed as the worst Batman in the history of time. Fair enough. I was. Um, the next film I did was Out of Sight, which is probably the best reviewed film I've ever done. And, I, and I'm good in it because the film is good and the script was good and the director was great. And that's not to say bad things about the writer, the director. It just didn't gel and I was bad in it. So really, you are a, you know, you're just a vessel and however it works out, it will rely on so many other elements than your, you know, astute performance but, in things. But in the course of all these years, you'll clearly learn something. Sure, you And you clearly lot. learn how I communicate something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you learn, I'll tell you, my Aunt Rosemary was a very famous singer. Rosemary, Rosemary Clooney. Clooney. Great singer, starred in White Christmas. She, at, and, and I remember I was her driver when I was 21 years old. And uh, I remember we were in Lake Tahoe and she was singing with Billy Mays Orchestra. And it was Helen O'Connell and Margaret Whiting and Kay Ballard and Kay Starr. And, you know the terrible thing? I'm probably the only person who knows know. all these names yeah. that you're saying. Martha Ray. Yes, and, Martha Ray. And Rosemary got up and she was singing one of the songs that were hits of hers. It wasn't Come On To My House. It was, a, it was Tenderly, I think. And, you know, the evening breeze. And I'm listening to her sing with this beautiful orchestra. And she's doing infinitely less than she did when she was younger. And I said to her, why is it you're a better singer now? You can't hold the note and you can't hit the note. And she said, because I don't have to prove I can sing anymore. And I feel as an actor, that's a great lesson, you know, which was uh, you don't have to prove you can do these things now. Now you serve the material, which I think is what, uh, really good singers have done over the years. We talked a little bit earlier about career management. Um, you've had, there are questions you ask and you think, Jesus, how am I going to say this? You've had a few clunkers oh. in recent years. You think? And, well, okay. Yeah. And you once said about Hollywood, at some point, they're going to take away the toys. Sure. I know how this ends. I know how this works. Mm -hmm. Have you, in the course of your career, ever been worried, maybe after one of those clunkers, they're going to stop letting me play with the toys? Well, not yet. There have been plenty of times where, uh, where you make mistakes. Sometimes it's your own mistake. Sometimes it's, you know, you'll get in a film that you think is going to be great and it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, that's your own fault and sometimes it's other people's fault. I've, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to still be allowed to do what I like to do. I'm about to do a movie with... Uh, Brad Pitt, um, uh, that's a really good script, and this wonderful director named John Watts. So um, as long as you have those on the horizon, you know, you're doing all right. Is that one of the reasons, though, that you went into directing early mm -hmm. on? Because if the acting thing doesn't work out, I've got another skill set here? It's all, you know, I'm more curious than that. I'm curious about, and yes, okay, first and foremost, you're absolutely right. I started by producing and writing and then directing because I thought, I don't want to worry about what some casting director thinks about how I'm aging, you know, and like, well, he looks pretty old. Don't put him in this anymore. I knew that would come. So I did want to be in the industry that I love doing something different. And I, I but also I'm more curious than that. I, you know, when you're acting in a film, you're, you're basically one of the paints. And when you're directing the film, you're the painter. I'm going to use sound. I'm going to use cinematography. I'm going to use editing. I'm going to use music. I'm going to use acting. And you get to pick and choose. And it's infinitely more exciting. And I've succeeded wildly and I've failed terribly at that as well. I've never learned anything from succeeding, <laughs> ever. I've learned a lot from failing. And so I don't mind all of that. I like getting in and saying, well, let's, let's muck it up a little bit. 
Which lasts longer for you, the successes or the failures? The failures. They do. Sure. Do you? I mean, I mean, all right, you do a movie, and I'm sure by the time it comes out, you believe in it, mm -hmm. and the first week's, weekend's returns aren't good. Returns never bother me because returns aren't necessarily indicative of the, the, uh, of the film. And I can give you lots of examples of that. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou uh, opened to like $3 million. And uh, you know, films that I think were pretty good. Uh, good Night and Good Luck, the film I wrote and directed, the first one that I, it was, you know, that, was, that, was a, that I wrote, you know, it didn't open big. It had to have a long run. Critically is where you can get hurt, if, particularly if you're writing and directing, because when you're acting, no one's questioning your intelligence. Right? You're just acting. They just go, well, I like him or I don't like him. He's right for it, he's wrong for it. When you're directing, it's like, what are you trying to say? And how are you trying to tell me? That is a, it, that's more of a judgment on you as a, as a person. And so they're a little more personal. And I think, and maybe you'll, you could probably answer this as well. Um, you've got a new show. Some people uh, you know, will talk about your new show. Uh, I can read 100 good reviews and one bad review. And all I'll fixate on is, you know, like, what's this guy's problem? You know, I mean, it's just the nature of, uh, of sort of being in public, I think. Let's talk about some real stuff. Uh, you are involved in so many causes. Sure. Uh, mass atrocities, human rights, gun violence. There's a lot of things that are bad in the world. How do you decide what to get behind? I try to get behind things that I think I could have. Uh, at least I can help bring attention to it. I can't change things. You know, I'm not a, uh, we're not a government, my wife and I. We try to get involved in things that we think we can uh, bring, uh, you know, we can, you know, it's rolling that ball uphill towards that arc of justice, you know, and, uh, and we fail. I fail most often. You know, failed a lot in Darfur. Uh, failed a lot, quite honestly, but, uh, but it's worth the journey and worth, you know, trying to, you know, you, you look at, you look at the world and you go, look, we're all going to have, we're all in this together now. And we have to figure out ways to stand up for justice, which has to be waged. My wife and I talk about it all the time. It doesn't just happen. It has to be treated like war. You go to war, you, you arm yourself, you collect allies, you build an army. Well, you have to do that with, with justice and peace as well. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, getting in and getting your, you know, getting up to your knees in it and trying to figure out uh, where you can fit in and trying to, to uh, help. You say that your dad had one rule for you, which was take on the people who are more powerful than you and comfort, support, defend the people yeah. who are less powerful than yeah. you. Is that where your sense of outrage comes from? Sure. My family, well, look, I, you know, we're about the same age. I grew up in the no, 60s. No, we're not. We're not? No, we're not. Okay, good. I'm I considerably feel... older than you, <laughs> oh, which, is well, why, which is why we ran through these movies of you, not TV shows of me. Well, good. <laughs> but, I mean, growing up in a certain period of time, uh, uh, the 60s and 70s particularly, you know, there was the women's rights movement. There was civil rights movement. There was, you know, there was so many things going on, the anti-Vietnam movement. There were so many things going on that you had to be involved. My parents were deeply involved. And... Uh, and so was, as I was growing up, I was taught, you know, if you're not in it, then you, you're, you're not participating. And so I've always, my father was, I mean, he would come home and say, you know, go in there and do this. And if you don't do that, you know, don't come back and look me in the eye. And he was right. Of course, I hated a lot of it because as a young kid, I thought, can't we just, you know, 
couldn't this be easier for us? And so, he said, so I no. just want to show these are pictures of you oh, with dad. your dad, Nick Clooney, who yeah. was a newsman yeah. uh, and, and, and a very successful and able and, and crusading newsman. I, I'm going to ask this next question with full sense of the irony of okay. me asking this of you. Yeah. Was he in a hard act to follow? Yes. And uh, and, you know, and I know that uh, my advantage over yours is I didn't follow him in somewhat of the same profession. Um, So I could, you know, I actually when I was very young, I studied journalism in college and I wanted to be a journalist. I I thought it was a really noble profession. And then early on, I got a couple of opportunities because I was Nick Clooney's son to do just live remotes from, you know, know, a, a, a Bengals football game and stuff like that. And I was terrible at it. The door was open for me because my father was an anchorman. Uh, and so I got to jump ahead of other people. And I was terrible at it. And I realized I was always going to be compared to my father. And I needed to find something else besides that profession because I was never going to catch him. He was really good at it. And uh, I admire so much the, the fact that you're, you've taken on uh, the job that you've taken on for so long, because you know, as I know, it's a it's a hard act to follow. You know? It is it is a hard act to follow. New subject. Yes. How worried are you about our democracy? I'm worried about it. I'm worried about uh, the coarsening of America. I'm worried about how uh, we celebrate unkindness. Now we sort of everybody jumps up and down and cheers when somebody's owned. You know own the libs or, you know, yell at some, you know, conservative. I'm worried about that. I, uh, you know, there, there's always been a sort of uh, a certain amount of acrimony between everyone, but it's it's at a level. I, you know, I worry about things. I'll tell you, I, I look at, so we're sending, you know, the, the, the new joke, the new cruelty is let's send migrants, people who are seeking asylum, remember, legally here. Let's send them without any warning, you know, because... It's, it's fun to own the liberals. We'll send them to, you know, to Martha's Vineyard. That'll teach, you know, where Obama's people. And we'll send them to, to the vice president's house with no warning, no help, no nothing. So I look at where we are in this sort of coarsening of, of, our, uh, of our discourse, and I find it to be worrying. You know. How do you feel about the likely prospect of a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024? Well, look, uh, it's all scary, right? Just because there is, a, uh, uh, there is a world where we could go back to where we were. I don't think it's as likely as people think, but I was wrong about the first election. You know, I didn't think people would, uh, I didn't think people would vote for someone who was so deeply flawed. You know, I mean, I know Donald Trump, you know, I mean, that's the thing is people, you know, I have his phone number in my phone book. He was he was the guy that came to the bars and and asked me about which which cocktail waitress was single. You know, that's who he was. This is back in the 90s. Not that long. No, back in the 2000s, quite honestly. And uh, and so there, there's this part of you that just goes, well, that guy shouldn't be president. But I was wrong. And he was. And uh, and our uh, democracy, uh, I believe, paid a price, certainly around the world. And uh and I worry about the uh, the possibility. I don't think it's as good as some people are afraid of, but I do worry about it. I think we're we're in a, a time where uh, we need to, you know, we need some interesting uh, candidates all around the board. You know, I think. Democratic side as well. Sure, 
Yeah, we need we need interesting candidates out there, and uh, you know I need we need our bench to be uh, stronger. Probably probably need you know politics don't necessarily attract uh, young people because they look at it and think, wow, there's just nothing good about getting in there. Speaking of age, mm. you are now sixty one yes. years old. Yeah, um, I read somewhere that you have talked about how many summers you yeah. have left. Yeah. What do you want to do with the summers that you have left? It's interesting. Well, my wife and I have had this conversation about, um, you know, we call it our halcyon years. I said, listen, I'm 61. I can still play a little basketball. I can still hang, you know, play sports and run around. I said, but in 20, 25 years, I'll be 80, 85 years old. And then that's a real number. You know, <laughs> you're going to play it with a walker. You know, I said, so we have to make sure that while while I'm young, not her, that we're able to spend time doing other things besides just work. Because right now, Amal and I are, you know, we have a foundation, probably takes up 50% of our days. And I'm working, I'm directing a film, and Amal's got, you know, Maria Reza and all these amazing clients that she's trying to keep out of jail and try to help. And, uh, and it's too much for both of us. And we know it, and we're, we have a goal of not quitting because we both love what we do, but s- slowing it down, simplifying it, taking them all, taking, you know, two less clients. So she's doing five instead of seven. And, you know, and me taking uh, one job a year instead of four. Just trying to simplify it to spend time with our kids, to spend time with our family. You talk about your kids, you, mm-hmm. uh, Ella and Alexander, five years old. Yes. You are a notorious prankster. And I read somewhere. What's he talking about? I read somewhere that he has learned from the master. So yes. here's the question: mm. What's the best prank he has pulled, either on you or his sister or his well, mom the, or somebody? The, the really good one was the. I do a lot of like peanut butter and Nutella jokes, which just work great. Um, is, is it true that you used to put Nutella in is, a diaper and yeah, then yeah, you'd yeah. sit there and eat it? Well, I wouldn't eat it. He would eat it, which is fantastic. I mean, that, that was a really good play. <laughs> now he has one where... I don't think Amal... I know Amal a little bit. She, I wouldn't think she would have found that enormously she, funny. She doesn't find it nearly as funny as I do. Or, or Alexander. So Alexander walked in the other day and he's put crunchy peanut butter on the side of his tennis shoes. And he comes and he goes, Papa. Like, yeah, he goes, you smell poo-poo? And I'm like... No, no, no. We have a giant dog outside. And then he looks down at his shoe, and he's got crunchy peanut butter on the side of his shoe. He goes, uh-oh. And I go, uh-oh. And he reaches down, he goes like this. He goes, and he goes, oh, it's poo-poo. <laughs> <laughs> and I, literally, I wanted to, I, I wanted, I couldn't celebrate enough. I would have done an end zone, you know, dance. I was so happy. Well, you may be 61, but you're act more like 14. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that the way? Isn't that the way you're supposed to do it? Yes, it is. Yeah. George, thank you. Thank you, Chris. This is a delight, as always. Thank you so much for doing this. Good to see you. While George Clooney talks about slowing down, he seems to have a different definition than most folks. As we mentioned, he's about to star in a new movie with his buddy, Brad Pitt, and he's directing his ninth film, The Boys in the Boat, set for release next year. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next.